You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 29th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson. And coming up, has the clampdown begun? Police in China move to stamp out any anti-Covid protests. We'll have analysis of the latest. Also ahead, Russia criticises the Pope over claims he makes about some minority groups fighting on behalf of the Kremlin. Does he have a point? Plus the business news and then the head of tourism in Singapore tells us why the industry is booming. Anyone coming to Singapore can truly avail themselves of our nightlife, our F&B scene, if they can get a reservation. And a bit later on, we bid farewell to British Airways' first-class lounge at JFK and find out what's replacing it. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. We begin in China, where police have been out in force, patrolling areas where demonstrators have been advised to gather. The anti-COVID protests are now reaching a critical point. They could gain momentum or the authorities could stop what they consider to be illegal assemblies. Well, Rana Mitter is director of the Oxford University's China Centre. I'm delighted to say Rana joins me now. Good afternoon. Hello there, Emma. Um, So just uh, if you could explain for us which side at the moment has the advantage here? Oh, I think there's little doubt at the moment, Emma, that it's the government. Essentially, the major cities of China have been flooded with police. There are cars, there's wire and various sorts of barriers going up to try and make sure that as far as possible, none of the demonstrations which rocked China cities over the weekend reoccurs. There's also some attempts to try and talk to some of the groups that the government is most worried may be affected by them in terms of uh, trying to, to rise up. That will be people like students at the elite universities in Beijing from reports we're getting, they're currently in meetings being told to calm down and that some of their uh, demands may well be satisfied. But there's certainly a strong sense that the government is moving fast and hard on these demonstrations. Would it be fair to suggest that controlling the protests is arguably more important than controlling the spread of COVID in China at the moment? Oh, I think that at the moment, the one thing that the Chinese government is absolutely determined to do is make sure that these protests do not spread further. They've noted, for instance, that the I'm sure they will have noted that the the protests have gone national. This is very unusual because actually demonstrations in China aren't that unusual, but mostly they tend to revolve around very local issues. Here you have the use of social media that has basically enabled people in different cities to coordinate with each other. And that in, in the short term is much more worrying. The rates of COVID are going up in China, but of course, globally speaking, they're still very low per capita compared to what was the case in other countries uh, two or three years ago. The difference is that China is still trying to eliminate COVID while the rest of the world is essentially living with it. How much of a success has the social media campaign been with this, given the fact that this is the first time that we have seen social media operate in this way in China? Because if we cast our minds back to previous demonstrations in on the mainland at least... Tiananmen was contained and it was in one place and we were you know there were a few mobile phones around at the time but it was nowhere near the situation that we are that we have now I mean is there any suggestion that social media is unstoppable here in China or can the authorities clamp down on it? 
It is certainly a game changer, Emma. There's no doubt about that. Social media has been one of the biggest transformations of Chinese society that one can imagine, certainly in the last couple of decades. But it is still very heavily under the control of the authorities. The way in which things basically happen is you could argue that it's a sort of battle between the censors and people who want to to make a point. So, for instance, a particular word, one that's going around at the moment is uh, which means white paper revolution. That's referring to this phenomenon that you may have seen and people may have noticed of people holding up blank pieces of paper, which are an ironic protest against censorship. So looking for that phrase on social media, you won't find it at the uh, at the moment. But overall, it's worth remembering that most people on social media in China don't protest against the government in, in, in terms of wanting to get rid of it, more that they want to make their case known. So I think the government probably regards this as a relatively rare case where actually there's a, a real danger in terms of the system being attacked, and they want to make sure that they push back against that as hard as possible. But it doesn't mean an end, I think, to, to social media in the way that it gets used in China. Because this is a, a arguably a, a series of demonstrations which is about two things. It is prompted by the fact that Chinese citizens are entering, what, their fourth year now of COVID restrictions. But also that we have been astonished to see this, this more widespread criticism of Xi Jinping. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't overread the criticism of Xi Jinping. I think there have been a couple of cases which have gone viral on social media, largely in the West, where there's a call for his, his downfall. But overall, the big protests have been against, in particular, the local authorities who have really been you know, doing things like uh, putting chains on people's doors to prevent them getting out. That was the cause of the horrific fire in uh, Urumqi, for, uh, 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 for instance. Overall, I think there is this strong sense that something has to be done in terms of changing the COVID policy. Uh, I mean, I've talked to friends in Beijing recently, and one of the things they find most depressing is that the policy is always going backwards. You know, they're locked in their flats again. They can't really go out to restaurants. Uh, they can only get takeaway meals. It feels a bit like the rest of the world was in 2020. And I think the idea that if there's a narrative about moving China fairly clearly and rapidly forward out of COVID, that would clearly calm things down. But right now, it's not quite so clear what that's going to be. Although we do see from this morning, reports that already the authorities are saying that they're going to go and do a mass vaccination drive on older people, which they had not previously done. So that may be a sign that they're speeding up the pace. What is the likelihood of the zero COVID policy being reversed, amended, moderated, loosened, whatever adjective you, you know, verb you want to describe it to use? But the fact is, is that Xi Jinping has clung fast to this approach. I think that the only logical way it seems to me out of this, and this is said you know, by plenty of commentators, including in China, is that there needs to be a better vaccine rollout. Because if you don't have a highly immunized population and one that's had some exposure to the, uh, the latest strain of the virus, Omicron, then it's very difficult to see how you get out of it. Uh, right now, there is um, uh, not sufficient supply of a really effective vaccine in China, though. They haven't made their own mRNA-style vaccines, you know, like Pfizer, Moderna, the ones that we know in the, in the West. And so far, they've been very reluctant to import them. I just wonder if that might change, if they might think, well, actually, if we bring the stuff in, you know, once it's in a, in, a, in a syringe, you can't tell where it's from and nobody really cares. You know, they want to get it and they want to get on with their lives. So it's possible that a shift in terms of using mRNA vaccines might just make a difference. It is worth noting, though, it's a different jurisdiction that they have been using them in Hong Kong for some time. And of course, Hong Kong is now it's still it's more restricted than most Western countries, but it's a lot freer in terms of COVID restrictions than the mainland. And what might that mean for the rest of us, were China to open up a little? 
I think that there are various things that will emerge. One thing that's already happened, and there's a question of whether it can bounce back, is that China's economy has been really badly damaged by the zero COVID policy. Uh, small businesses, you know, um, uh, restaurants or manufacturing plants have often had to shut down at very, very short notice, and people aren't sure if they uh, if they can actually carry on with what they're doing. So sometimes they just basically kind of you know throwing their hands up in, in in despair. And lack of demand as well as supply in the Chinese economy, or a reduction in de- demand and supply, is going to have a huge effect on the rest of the world. This is the world's second biggest economy by GDP, after all, and it's being currently downgraded from a government expectation of growth this year that would have been, they said, at 5.5%. Most observers now think that's down to about 2 or 3 and with an economy the size of China's, that's a really significant downturn, which the rest of the world, particularly in a recession, is certainly going to notice. Rana Mitter, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is eight minutes past midday. Let's get a quick summary now of the latest news headlines. Here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Thanks very much, Emma. Russia has criticised comments made by the Pope that some minority groups of soldiers have behaved worse than others in the invasion of Ukraine. Moscow said that the comments by Pope Francis were perverse. We'll have much more of this story after today's news headlines. Germany's government has been defending its plan to make it easier for people to apply for citizenship. Chancellor Olaf Scholz says he wants to boost immigration and tackle a skills shortage. But opposition lawmakers say the move might encourage illegal immigration. And the world's largest active volcano, Hawaii's Mauna Loa, has erupted for the first time in almost 40 years. Officials say that the lava flow is mostly contained within the summit, but residents have been placed on alert and warned about the risk of falling ash. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Marcus. Now let's hear more about those comments made by Pope Francis that some minority groups of soldiers have behaved worse than others in the invasion of Ukraine. Pope Francis told a US magazine that he believes the cruelest troops are generally Chechens and Buryats. Russia has criticised his remarks. Well, the broadcaster, journalist and former Vatican correspondent Juliet Lindley joins me now from our headquarters at Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich. Hello, Juliet. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Emma. Good to have you with us. Now, just tell us exactly what did the Pope say? Right, Emma, this is what he said precisely. When I speak about Ukraine, I speak about the cruelty because I have much information about the cruelty of the troops that come in. And he added, generally, the cruelest are perhaps those who are of Russia, but are not of the Russian tradition, such as the Chechens, the Buryats, and so on. Now, you may well be asking, why them? Why did Pope Francis single them out? Well, quite possibly, he was making an attempt at an overture to Moscow, a way of saying that the Russians themselves may not be quite as bloodthirsty as they're being depicted. And as we know, Emma, Francis has long been ultra-careful about not stepping too much on Moscow's toes. However, if that even was his intention, well, it clearly has backfired horrendously. And for a leader who's dedicated so much of his pontificate to promoting interfaith and interreligious dialogue, this really is a clangor. So do we know why he singled these groups out in particular? Well, that's exactly it. It it was possibly, I mean, how do we know specifically what his intentions were, but possibly because he was trying to make an overture to Moscow. He's always been very, very careful not to point the finger too uh, overtly at the Kremlin, at Vladimir Putin. So do carry on. 
Yeah, so so how has Moscow reacted? Well, uh, they've pounced on his words, saying, we are one family with Buryats and Chechens and other representatives our, of our multinational and multi-confessional country. Essentially, how dare the Pope be saying that? And the pontiff's words really do come across as an attack on non-Christians, if you wish, since the Buryats are a Mongol ethnic group that are mainly Buddhist and shamanic, and the Chechens are mainly Muslim. So the Russian foreign ministry called the Pope's words a perversion, and they said they were went beyond Russophobia. And meanwhile, even the governor of the Republic of Buryatia also, he lashed out saying, to hear the head of the Catholic Church talk about cruelty of specific nationalities is strange, to say the least. And he added that given the checkered history of the Crusades, perhaps Catholic leaders shouldn't be giving lessons on morality on armed conflict to others. You mentioned the fact that he hasn't openly condemned the Russian invasion mm. thus far, yeah. but he has said now in this interview, we'll come to the, sort of like the nature of the interview in a moment, but the quote he said that, you know, He's now said that the one who invades is the Russian state. How closer does that take us to a condemnation? It offers clarity, doesn't it? Well, it offers clarity. And he himself says in that interview where he is asked specifically, why are you always beating around the bush? He says, sometimes I try not to specify so as not to offend and rather condemn in general, although it is well known whom I am condemning, the pontiff said. And it's not necessary that I put a name and surname. So, Emma, essentially, it's obvious he's referring to Vladimir Putin in Moscow. But Francis hasn't wanted to directly antagonize the Kremlin ever since the February invasion for reasons including ongoing attempts to smooth relations with the Russian Orthodox Church, headed by former KGB agent Kirill, and in order to maintain more credibility in the Vatican's attempts at peace mediation in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. And, you know, elsewhere in this specific interview with America magazine, Francis says that he'd be willing to travel both to Kiev and to Moscow to advance peace efforts. And he confirmed the Vatican is absolutely ready to broker peace, if called upon. How common is it for the Pope to give interviews like this? I mean, he speaks out quite a lot but to actually do a sit down with a new US magazine it, it seemed well it seemed quite unusual well Let's say, unlike your previous monarch, Emma, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth I, Pope Francis I has quite often spoken to the press, and it's a bit of a nightmare for his entourage, precisely for reasons such as the conversation that you and I are having today. So the, the pontiff uh, Vatican observers have often said he really needs to think carefully before issuing condemnations like the ethnic one that he made in this interview. And it's a major headache for the Vatican comms team. It's not the first time he gets himself into hot water. He's also made headlines a few years ago ago after a long sit-down interview with the editor of Italian Daily La Repubblica, for instance, in which he made a remark saying hell doesn't exist. And that threw a whole spanner in the works and the press were all over that. Now, quite possibly the remarks on Chechens and Buryats wouldn't have been made had he not been speaking to a Jesuit magazine and he is himself a Jesuit. So maybe some say, you know, he felt he could possibly let his hair down a little. And that's absolutely no excuse, of course. And the media savvy pontiff should know better. Uh, he knows better than anyone that Every single word that he emits is scrutinized. So, Emma, perhaps a more Elizabethan approach to the press is to be recommended to the pontiff for future reference. Thank you, Juliet. That was Juliet Lindley in Zurich. You're listening to The Briefing Live on Monocle 24. The latest business news now. Let's hear from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Hello, Ewan. Hi, Emma. Good to have you with us. Uh, tell us about European natural gas prices. Yeah, they're on the up today and the story is whether it is another forecast from Maxar. They say the temperatures are set to be unseasonably cold 
across the northern part of the, co- the continent starting from next week. They've also revised up their outlook for early December. So that is uh, bad news on uh, the uh, house heating front and it is uh, bad news on the gas usage front. Uh, it has to say though that pretty much uh, storage levels are full across Europe. We're about 94% full uh, across the continent when it comes to gas storage. So all that building up during the summer is uh, still holding the continent in pretty uh, good stead. A little bit more uh, gas news uh, from Qatar, a bit of non-World Cup news from Qatar today. They've agreed to supply Germany uh, with liquefied natural gas under a long-term deal lasting as long as uh, 15 years. State-owned Qatar Energy and ConocoPhillips have uh, signed on the line to send up to 2 million tonnes of LNG to Germany starting from 2026. Of course, Germany's been one of the worst-hit European natures, uh, nations uh, after the reduction of supplies uh, in of gas uh, from Moscow. Uh, traditionally, Germany has really relied on those pipelines from Moscow and it hasn't had that much LNG arriving by ship. The UK has uh, relied on LNG uh, for much longer than Germany. The UK has a lot of terminals. Germany, not so many. But the Germany obviously trying to uh, change its supply away from Russia. And this deal with Qatar uh, should be very useful. Indeed. I mean, Germany, as far as I can remember, gets more than half of its gas from Russia, or used to before the, it, Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, but it's also building these incredible liquefied natural gas terminals. I mean, there's, there's a sense, at least from Germany, that it's, it's shifting direction as quickly as it possibly can. Yeah, of course, and building this infrastructure does take a fair bit of time. And in the past, it's got had very, very cheap gas uh, right on its doorstep. So why bother uh, shipping LNG from uh, elsewhere around the world? So now politics has got involved and it makes sense to build these terminals, but they don't come quickly and they don't come cheaply. But yeah, the whole of the eastern part of the continent and uh, Central Europe really Uh, very much dependent on Russian gas because those pipelines were there and the gas was very cheap. Uh, So uh, almost all countries, uh, you know, east of of France uh, have relied on Russian gas uh, and it only makes sense now because of the situation in Ukraine uh, to move away to LNG and get these uh, ships coming from Qatar uh, and the United States, two of the big producers of uh, LNG. Let's move uh, to Twitter, or rather to Elon Musk's steering of Twitter towards goodness knows where. Uh, Some have suggested (laughs) that he's deliberately going to try and get it to hit the rocks. (laughs) Yeah, Emma, I could give you an update on this story every day. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, this is perhaps one of his boldest uh, moves of of late. Uh, We've already lost half the staff from the company, although we heard yesterday that the company is now hiring. Perhaps we realise they've... Uh, they've rather gone a bit too far when it comes to getting rid of people Uh, but now he's been uh, laying into Apple uh, and uh, he says that uh, the iPhone maker uh, is has cut its Twitter advertising he says that they've uh, threatened to bump Twitter from uh, its app store and he also asked whether Apple hated free speech so really uh, laying into the tech giant it is particularly uh, bold of him because Apple is a very very big advertiser with Twitter uh, Bloomberg understands that uh, the company spends well over a hundred million dollars annually uh, and Twitter you know needs its advertising revenue that is how they uh, make money it's the, the key way that Twitter uh, uh, earns its its cash so it is pretty bold of Elon Musk to take on the company uh, and remember of course that uh, Apple also uh, operates the essential gateway for Twitter and that is the App Store uh, if uh, Musk's company lost access to that for some reason that would uh, cut it off from more than one and a half billion devices around the world although when it comes to the App Store it will be fair to say that Elon Musk does have 
uh, some allies, quite a lot of allies actually, a lot of people uh, do not like Apple's App Store. Apple takes a cut of some 30% of uh, revenues when it comes to the App Store. So not just purchases of apps, but also uh, in-app revenue. So when you subscribe to something uh, via the App Store, something you've downloaded onto your onto your iPhone, uh, Apple creams off 30% of that revenue. And that uh, has left a lot of software makers very unhappy with Apple and regulators, particularly European regulators. Uh, they are not happy with that. So Elon Musk, uh, it is a bold uh, a bold take uh, to, to, to try to take on Apple, but at least he's going to have some allies when it comes to the App Store. Ewan Potts, thank you so much for joining us on the line there. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Here with the briefing on Monocle 24. As we head towards the end of one year and the start of the next, the question of how even the most well-connected countries and cities make sure they get global travellers is paramount, paramount, I should say. Singapore is one key hub that's deploying some exciting strategies to keep its position high. And the Singapore Tourism Board CEO Keith Tan joined Monocle's editor Josh Fennett at Midori House to explain more. Josh began by asking Keith how he and his colleagues navigated a bumpy couple of years for tourism. I would say bumpy is an understatement to describe the last two years. It's been a crazy roller coaster, uh, but we are now seeing the shoots of recovery since the beginning of the year. Uh, we started out experimenting with vaccinated travel lanes uh, towards the end of 2021 and eventually moved to removing uh, all our quarantine restrictions and testing requirements from um, April 2022. And since then, we've seen a very strong uh, recovery for tourism into Singapore. We hope to hit, I think we are well on track to hitting about 6 million visitors this year. It's still a far cry from the 19 million that we saw in 2019. But all things considered, I think that's a pretty good recovery. Uh, in terms of month-on-month flows, we are about 60% of what we were doing in 2019. And we see strong signs of recovery, especially from uh, the region in Southeast Asia, from Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, and also from further long-haul markets like uh, the UK, Germany, and US. We, we do see lots of pent-up demand coming back. Uh, airlines, we're trying very hard to work with our airline partners to rebuild capacity. Uh, and people have come back with a vengeance, both leisure as well as business. And we hope to continue and sustain uh, this momentum going into 2023, 2024. Life is pretty much back to normal in Singapore. Um, we, we removed our mask indoor mask wearing mandate in August. The outdoor mask wearing requirement had been removed much earlier. So life in our clubs, restaurants, uh, shopping malls, attractions, museums, pretty much back to, to normal. Uh, and so anyone coming to Singapore can truly avail themselves of our nightlife, our F&B scene, if they can get a reservation and a, and a, and a spot. Always a trouble, always a trouble. And yeah. uh, I think, uh, you know, a city's, a city's food scene is a bit like, I guess, selling perfume on the internet. You don't really get to try it before you buy it you have to be there to enjoy it so how do you go about kind of communicating these things i've always been very fascinated by 
the way in which it's measured you know you might have michelin stars you mm. might have um you know the different influences of you know peranakan culture or mm-hmm. south asian culture or what you know whatever it is yeah how are you communicating the great the great richness of uh, everything from hawker center to uh haute cuisine well as you've alluded there's a huge breadth and diversity of of culinary offerings in singapore and i would use two parameters to uh, gauge that one is the range of cuisine so as you've mentioned you know peranakan you have pretty much the whole range of asian and global cuisines in singapore uh, i think we're still not quite there yet in terms of comparing ourselves against london it's a bigger city you have truly a you global win on, I city you went on the weather though on balance uh, <laughs> yeah but i think certainly in asian cities uh, amongst asian cities singapore is very much a global city as far as the range of of food options is concerned the range of 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 cuisines but also the the ease of finding alternative types of food so whether you're a vegan a vegetarian gluten-free it's all easily available so that's one parameter the breadth of the range of cuisines but also in terms of price points i like to say that singapore is one of the few places in the world where you can get a great meal experience for $500 a person, $50 a person, or even $5 a person. So you can go for a Michelin star meal at lunch. You can get get a much cheaper but equally satisfying dinner uh, at one of our hawker centers as well. So I like that that range and diversity in Singapore. I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of sustainability because yeah. it's not always the easiest circle to square mm-hmm. if you understand my meaning people coming in on long haul trips mm-hmm. you know inevitably have uh, a, a carbon footprint to mm-hmm. those things and sustainability here at monocle often doesn't just mean the carbon footprint it means how do you keep restaurants going if customers only come once a year how do mm-hmm. you keep neighborhoods thriving mm-hmm. if hotels are competing for living space how can you make tourism in short big question more sustainable Well, the, there are many dimensions, as you say, to sustainability. Our f- primary concern right now is with carbon, with waste management, uh, and we are holding our hotels, uh, as well as other parts of the tourism sector, a lot more accountable. We're setting high standards. There is a national plan called the Singapore Green Plan 2030 that aims to reduce our overall carbon emissions, reduce waste uh, with very clear targets for different sectors of the economy, including tourism, uh, by 2030, and eventually moving to towards net zero from 2050 onwards, or even possibly before that. So tourism is a big contributor to that, and we want, we have set a clear roadmap for hotels, uh, whether it is to get internationally recognized certification for their buildings as they plan for new hotels how do you plan for sustainability from the inside out using more sustainable materials using more sustainable air conditioning systems putting in place efficient waste management systems to reduce or eliminate waste altogether from from the hotels so that's a very clear plan with uh, uh, targets and goals and strategies and for us in the in the tourism board then we also then bring together uh, solutions providers companies startups uh, with solutions for all the sustainability related questions and demands 
that our tourism industry has. Ideally, we would also love our events in Singapore to be a lot more uh, sustainable. For example, major events like the Formula One night race uh, are naturally seen as uh, contributors to carbon emissions mm. uh, in Singapore. And we, we want to work towards reducing the carbon fr- or eliminating altogether the carbon footprint of these events in Singapore. And that was Keith Tan, the CEO of the Singapore Tourism Board, talking to our editor, Josh Fennett. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. Finally on today's programme, we jet off to New York and Monocle's David Phelan is there for us. Hello, David. Good morning to you. Good morning. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I imagine, where it's, what, about half past seven in the morning? It's, uh, that's exactly what it is. And I am actually quite bright-eyed so far, yes. I'm delighted to hear that. Uh, tell us what takes you to New York. Well, after 52 years at Terminal 7, British Airways is uh, literally in uh, the next two days completely leaving that terminal to move to Terminal 8. Now, that sounds a fairly ho-hum story, except that if you've ever flown to, say, Las Vegas with British Airways and you've uh, changed planes in New York, you've also had to change terminals uh, because Terminal 8 is where American Airlines, uh, its uh, main American partner, is based. And that's been a hassle. For the first time, you don't have to change terminals. You stay in Terminal 8 and, uh, indeed, British Airways is launching a big co-located lounge with American Airlines, which opens on Thursday. And in fact, I'm heading off to see that in the next few minutes. Uh, Do report back. Um, It's always nice to hear what happens in a lounge when David Phelan walks through it. Um, Tell us about about this lounge. I mean, the fact that this new venture between uh, American and BA when it comes to sharing um, spaces, um, this means that some rather cherished parts of the British Airways experience at New York, at JFK, will actually have to go. Yes, that's right. Uh, and we're about to find out the details of if there's anything to replace it. There may not be. The Concord room, which is the super deluxe uh, room, there's only uh, there's one in JFK, there's one in uh, London at Heathrow Terminal 5, and that's it. Um, they're just for dedicated first class passengers. And the, the, the Heathrow one, I should stress, is safe. But because they're moving terminals, the Concord room will disappear from JFK. In fact, the last flight out of it is is tomorrow night. Uh, so that seems to be quite a big uh, change. I, I'm sure British Airways will have a, a way of um, presenting this as a positive thing. But uh, on the face of it, I think people will be missing it. Do we know what's prompted this? I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it makes more sort of practical logistic sense not to have one. But does it suggest something about the fact that, you know, that that area of the market, the British Airways, you know, may well have once cherished is, is perhaps less so? Um, I think it, it definitely there's an element of that. That's right. Across lots of airlines, um, first class cabins are disappearing. But I think it's also the fact that they're making a big thing of this being the biggest co-located lounge they've ever had with American and uh, BA together. And once you've done that, then it's difficult to have a, a separate, to build a whole new separate lounge just for British Airways customers. Thank you, David. I'm going to ask you now to remove your aviation hat and and and, and put on your tech hat, which is what we know you for equally well here at Monocle 24. Uh, news from Qualcomm. Yes, uh, Qualcomm 
is the chip maker that you may never have heard of, or maybe you have, they're increasingly well known. But the big thing about them is that every premium Android smartphone, for example, will have a Qualcomm chip in it. And Snapdragon is the, their brand of chip. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, they announced the Snapdragon 8 Generation 2 chip. Uh, it all sounds very, very technical, but I talked in detail to the CEO, Cristiano Amon, and he was very, um, of course, passionate and excited about it, but he he revealed that that there are it's not just about being faster that there will be definite new features that will be um capable on these new smartphones whether they're made by sony or samsung or oppo or whoever um because you'll be able to do a lot more with this this new chip because of ai artificial intelligence and do we know what this ai artificial intelligence will do within the phone that we perhaps will notice well ai is always such a woolly buzz phrase and I did try to pin him down and he did give me a lot of uh, good examples for example you take a, a picture in very low light but the the artificial intelligence which really just means that they've got data from people who've taken pictures in the past so that they know that you can vaguely see that you're looking at a beach and palm trees the the uh, the ai knows what those colors should be and can enhance them so that even if it's in low light you can turn out a picture that's very faithful in colors or if you're walking through an area of low cellular uh, capability the ai will remember this from the last time it was near there and will boost the um the, the power of the phone uh, automatically to compensate let's stay in the world of phones and motorola that's a name we perhaps have heard about but quite a long time ago um That's but right. it's trying to make a little bit of a comeback yes <laughs> a uh, motorola uh, never really went away but it, it stuck to budget phones now it's coming back to higher end phones with something called the motorola razor 2022 and it's a foldable phone so you may remember the, the razor it was uh, you're, you're far too young of course emma but it was from the early 2000s it was a flip phone that was very thin and very uh, uh celebrated for its beautiful aluminium um casing this is now a foldable phone where the entire inside is a, a folding piece of glass uh, so when it's open it's the size of an apple iphone uh, 14 pro max a 6.7 inch screen but you can fold it in half and it goes in any pocket it's quite a chunky thing to go in your pocket but it goes in the pocket very well and uh, this is one of the first folding phones i've tried that actually feels as solid and as useful as a regular phone because it has decent cameras and it, it's it's been very well crafted so that it, it doesn't feel like it's going to uh, snap apart in your hand has the folding fo phone got legs <laughs> it's a good question not samsung not believes literally. it has it's <laughs> No, 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 indeed. <laughs> Though that would be perhaps the next stage. Um, it, 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 Samsung is putting a lot of um, effort into making a lot of uh, folding phones. It, it, it releases folding flagships every year now. And uh, other brands, Motorola, Oppo, uh, Xiaomi, and uh, a couple of others are getting into it. Apple has not done so. But there is, there's that dichotomy. You want the biggest screen, but you don't want to take up as much space in your pocket as, as you need. Some fold out to be a tablet, which always look a bit weird to me because they're square when they're opened out. But this one, uh, like the Motorola Razr 22 that folds down into a smaller uh, phone, seems to make a lot of sense. Finally, uh, let's talk a little bit about Apple and its Apple new Apple Watch. This is this is de designed with a very particular market in mind, isn't it, David? I don't think it's me. Well, it may not be, and it's probably not me either, but I do wear one because I think it's it's got a big, big screen on it, and it's very 
very nice and the battery goes on and on but <clears throat> you're right it's designed for extreme sports enthusiasts and uh, when you're swimming with this is called the apple watch ultra when you're swimming you suddenly see the screen is showing you the depth that you're underwater now it's probably only a matter of um half a, a meter if your arms are just swimming uh, and you're on the surface but there's an app called oceanic plus which was promised when the the phone was announced and has finally arrived which means that you can actually use the phone as a fairly decent uh, because it's got such a great depth sensor as an alternative to a, a proper dive watch Wonderful. David Phelan in New York. Thank you very much indeed. Go and enjoy that new lounge. Um, That's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producer, Rhys James. The researcher is Emily Sands and our studio manager is Adam Heaton. The Briefing's back tomorrow at the same time. Andrew Muller will be here a bit later with tonight's edition of The Daily. That programme will be airing at 1800 London time. But for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.